Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. How do we make this fair? And how do we make this work for everybody in the region? So the transition has to be really democratic and broad and open and transparent, not just for the energy elites. If oil and gas companies still want to continue to pump out oil and gas, knowing that our planet is dying because of it and that we as a, a species are going to die out, then you need to make it so that they have to pay huge amounts to, to take make sure that carbon doesn't go into our atmosphere. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. You're listening to Matt and Becky and today we're talking all about the net zero transition happening in Aberdeen with two fabulous guests. Yep, later in the show we'll be chatting with Professor Tavis Potts from the University of Aberdeen and returning guest Alison Stewart, Director of Aberdeen Climate Action. We'll also consider what Aberdeen's story means for folk living in other parts of the UK and the world, where similar transitions are unfolding. And we'll be doing our very best to bring all this back to a practical focus of what we can all do to influence change, from taking on civic responsibilities like voting or writing letters to our representatives, to things we can do in our communities and in our homes. So as always, you can reach out to us on our dedicated Twitter handle. If you haven't already, go and find and follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions over there. Also, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. Before we get into our big ticket item discussion today, I think we'd better reflect back on what's been happening over the last couple of weeks with one of my favorite parts of the show, the good, the bad, and the plain old weird. And Matt, you have been doing a lot of reading this week and uncovered an obscene number of stories that fit the bill here, haven't you? Yes, yeah. Another busy news week. It doesn't seem like we ever have a quiet one. Gone is the silly season where they would fill, you know, the pages with pictures of Larry the cat at number 10 and all the rest. Um, so I'm a king gardener. I like I like getting out, growing fruit, veg, whatever it is. I saw this fantastic story in The Guardian saying that the UK could potentially grow up to 40% of its own fruit and veg by using 
urban green spaces. So forget your farmland, um, you know, put that to one side. Even if we just look at our cities, towns, villages, the green space there, whether that's uh, unused derelict land at the moment, whether it's gardens, whether it's park, municipal space, which is maybe underutilized. So 40%. Now, obviously that's a big number. Huge. What proportion, Becky, of the UK's food in total do you think that we currently import? Oh, that we currently import, that has got to be massive. Now, that's not just fruit and veg. Yep. That's the whole lot, right? That's that's everything from your sort of, you know, your Ferrero Rocher to, you know, your, your chicken, right? The whole lot. I, I reckon it's got to be a huge amount. It's got to be over 50%, surely. Well, uh, this is according to the, the, the Guardian article here, suggesting that a third of the UK's food in total is imported. However, that would be much, much higher if we were looking at fresh fruit and veg. They don't put a number on it, but it could be up as high as 50%. And maybe we'll defer to our listeners to uh, correctors or fact checkers as uh, as they say fit. But obviously, if we can cut into that, that's great for our carbon emissions. But also, we've seen that the supply chain come under particular strain after Brexit and also the pandemic. Um, as we speak, there are massive lorry queues outside Dover. Um, so yeah, it, it could, be, could mean better uh, news for food security. And Final quiz question on this. Oh, gosh. All right. Go on. In terms of urban green space. So um, yep. appetite for allotments at the moment is off the Richter scale. Mm-hmm. Okay. They've always been popular, but even more popular with, with lockdown. What percentage of urban green space do you think is made up of allotments? It it's, can be gardens, parks, playing fields, watersides, you know. 5%? 1%. 1%. Wow. So it is low. Okay. So and thinking about a just transition and trying to tie kind of reducing emissions and thinking about uh, democratizing ownership of land and what we do with that land to reduce emissions, Mm -hmm. you know, what a great opportunity. Okay. So that's my good news article. What about yours? Well, well, I just want to reflect because I love that for so many reasons. So I started growing uh, fruit and veg in in my garden. Mm. We started doing that. Oh, goodness. It must have been at the start of the pandemic. I think it was, a, let's work. try and do something in a, you know, at home. And it is incredibly rewarding. And I'm not like you, Matt. Like My family are not very skilled at this. I mean, my husband does come from a line of farmers. So I, I kind of felt like we might have some hope with that, but I certainly don't, right? So this was kind of my first foray into growing fruit and veg. Now, our strawberries have been phenomenal. So we, we tried to concentrate on things that we can't afford to buy or that we don't buy because they're quite expensive in the supermarket. Mm, yeah, I think that's a good, that, I think that's a really good one and also have big air miles, right? So, you know, yeah, yeah. strawberries, strawberries a good example. unbelievable crop. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. And they were absolutely delicious. So carrots, absolute disaster. Should be really, really easy. And they, they were like these mutant yeah. things. Don't get me started on carrots, Becky, unless we want to turn the airwaves blue. Um, yeah, I've had some bad, bad experiences. But no, I think it's a great thing to do. And I've really enjoyed doing it with, the, with kids as well. And I think it's another example of something that people can do uh fresh air exercise bond with friends and family and also be a bit greener reduce emissions uh, where they can so uh, yeah i'm with you well and i think that's an important point to come back to because i remember i got tricked during um during our cop 26 recordings when i um I was uh, playing the game, How Bad a Banana. So it was a game based on the book, How Bad a Bananas. Mm-hmm. And I was asked whether I thought bananas imported, I think, it, I can't remember which country it was in South America, um, would have higher carbon emissions or lower carbon emissions than tomatoes grown organically in the UK. Yeah. 
And actually, the tomatoes grown organically in the UK were, I think, something like 42 times worse than the bananas in terms of carbon emissions because of hot housing. So I think that this is really, really exciting. And presumably, if it's allotment space, it won't have the hot housing associated with it. Um, And it might encourage us all to eat a bit more seasonally as well, which is is very nice. Quite right. And don't you have a a good news story on bananas Yes, this brings me on to my good news story, which is all about bananas. Or rather, um, not bananas. Uh, What are they called? The false banana. So our wonderful producer, Karis, highlighted this story to us. And um, I have to say, I saw it and just got super excited because we love bananas and false bananas. That just sounds even better. Most of us probably know this already. And if we don't, the CCC's report should tell us that we need to address the carbon emissions in the food that we're eating. And there is a staple food in Ethiopia, uh, which is called the false banana or um, often referred to as a wonder crop. It's actually, and I'm bound to be pronouncing this wrong, it's actually called inset. And it's used in Ethiopia in as like a staple part of their diet. It's mm. very similar to a banana. Um, and it's it's um, it's much more like a kind of starchy food that can be fermented to make things like porridge and bread and so on. Um, and actually can really help with addressing climate emissions because it is, um, you know, can really, really support, uh, could, could be grown all over Africa and could support kind of feeding the nation in a much more sustainable way. So coming to a Tesco metro near you, we've unfortunately got some bad news stories. The bad news keeps on rolling in with regards to energy prices. Okay. So uh, we this is something we will keep on returning to. I think listeners are probably very engaged with what's happening and keen to understand how things are playing out. So I'll begin with, with one. Um, there was some really good commentary from Carbon Brief, Simon Evans there, about the impact of uh, cutting the green crap from uh, David Cameron in 2013 the impact upon energy efficiency obligations. Um, and that's well worth reading the, the story and we'll, we'll make sure we link to it. But there was a, a related piece from the uh, from ECIU, um, which is the um, Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. And they basically looked at how many homes we would have insulated if we hadn't cut the green crap. Okay. Have a guess. Okay. I'd g- give you just a to understand how many households there are in the UK for starters, 28 million. Yep. Okay. Uh, how many households could we have insulated if we hadn't have slashed the energy company obligation in 2013, eight or nine years ago? How many more? Um. So of those 28 million households that all need insulation. How many more would have had uh, at least two measures? And we could be like loft insulation and, I don't know, um, cavity wall insulation. Well, we don't seem to be doing a very good job at kind of getting those measures out. So I don't know, maybe a million, a million of 28? Nine million is what they're suggesting. Wow. Okay. Uh, so nine million homes. That's huge. And and people who say, right, well, that's a lot of homes. Okay. That's like London. Um, if you then ask the question, well, what does that mean for my bills? Mm-hmm. So many of the listeners, I hope, will be familiar with energy performance certificates. Um Typically, if you sell a home, especially in Scotland, but um, oftentimes, house particulars, you'll have your EPC attached to it. Tell you how energy efficient the home is, right? From a scale from A, I think, down to G or something, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so if you were in a kind of band F, which is really bad, you know, a bit like getting an F on your uh, (laughs) essay or something, it's not good news, right? Um, 
And if you brought it up to C, which is kind of like middling, but it's where we're hoping to get most stuff to, it's seen as a you know pr- pretty pretty decent position to be in. We would expect to see households today, if they'd have been one of those nine million that have got efficiency measures, to have cut mm-hmm. their gas bill by four hundred pounds a year. Wow! Come April, when the price cap goes up, which is absolutely huge. That's massive. That's huge. I mean, that's a down payment on something or a holiday. You know, this is, and for many people, they'll be looking and thinking, well, that's a good few food shops as well. So I thought that really hit me right between the eyes, thinking, what have we done? Why are we scaling back these efficiency obligations? And they're still talk- Becky, they're still talking about cutting more green crap to cut bills because bills are high. Bills are high because people's homes are inefficient and gas prices are high. I know. And it's this, it's this kind of short-term versus long-term thinking that, that really blows me away. I mean, absolutely, you know, we're all struggling with our bills right now, but it's not just about tomorrow's bill, is it? It's not just about the bill that we're paying today and tomorrow, but it's also about what we're going to be paying the year after and the year after and the year after. And more than that, how many people are, are, are also feeling cold in their homes or people that have non-renewable forms of heating suffering from the pollutants that we're pouring out into our homes when we're trying to heat them. Mm. You know, we've got a wood burner uh, a wood burner in our living room because we just can't keep this this room warm otherwise. Yeah. But actually putting that on the the particulates that are coming into my home and into my street and community, it's it's really devastating. Yeah. I was cycling back from a meeting last night. Um I'm a trustee for a community energy, a community environmental charity. Um, I was coming back from a, quite late last night and I couldn't believe how bad the air quality was. I could see the air under the streetlights and it wasn't a foggy night. It was fairly breezy and you could smell the coal, you could smell the wood. Uh, and you're right, a lot of people will be reaching for these to keep their homes warm. You know, we shouldn't vilify them for wanting to keep their homes warm. That's That's you know that's a that's a much broader failure okay um but yeah it's it's happening and i think i'd be fascinated to see the uh, you know consumption of these things over this winter yeah well this this links to like your um one of your weird stories matt doesn't it sort of the idea of uh, knocking off uh yeah. these green levies to 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 reduce costs now but it's having this kind of ongoing effect links to uh, links to one of your other stories yeah so I could have had this in the bad news, but I think there's some merit to it. And so I feel weird about it. I think it's why it's in the weird category, right? Uh, I feel conflicted. So it was um, Greg Jackson from Octopus Energy, who, you know, I, I think has done some fantastic stuff for the energy sector and really pushed the envelope in terms of innovating uh, the energy company model. Um, it was reported, I think, yesterday in the BBC uh, in an open letter he released suggesting that actually one of the ways to overcome this crunch, this price crunch coming in April and another one in October when the price cap goes up again. And remember, come October, we could see on average our dual dual fuel bills, that's electricity and gas, going up by £1,000 versus today. So he's quite right in saying we need to do something about that. We can't just swallow that or consumers can't just swallow that. And that actually what we could do is just a bit like, you know, it's equivalent to a mortgage or something, just spread that cost over over the years. Now, that seems like a way of getting over this hump, but it doesn't solve the problem. We're living, the bulk of us are living in highly inefficient homes. Now, my response to this is, yes, okay, that's that's a short-term solution, but why couldn't we be looking at doing something similar for energy efficiency retrofit payments? So if, if you spend £10,000 retrofitting your home, you could 
pay that off over the 10 years. So yeah, there's something in there, some value, but it doesn't solve the problem. So, you know, yeah, a, a real, real shocker. But I think probably brings us to a point where we'd like to hear a little bit more from our guests about local climate action. And uh, I think you're really well situated, Becky, to talk a bit about this and framing why it's so important. So obviously we're talking about Aberdeen and oil and gas transition. So you've been involved with this a little bit just before we, we speak to our guests. Yeah, yeah, a, a very small amount. And um, I mean, anybody listening can tell that I'm not Scottish. I'm not from Aberdeen. But many people will know that Aberdeen is is quite a big hub of activity, particularly when it comes to the oil and gas sector um, in the UK. And in fact, is transitioning now to a hub of renewable activity. <laughs> I guess this is this is the hope with the, the transition plans for Aberdeen and the northeast of Scotland. On the face of it, this is all very, very good and very exciting to have um, such a strong focus on this transition. Uh, but to date, I think a lot of the discussion has been around the transition of the industry, right? So what are these large oil and gas um, industries going to transition to? How are we going to see the growth of renewables in this area? What are we going to see in terms of jobs? And I think often what we miss in these conversations is talking about the people that live in Aberdeen, their communities, the way it's going to impact them and their lifestyle and their, their work opportunities, and, and also the way in which they can have some sort of a voice and some sort of a say in what this future effectively of their neighbourhoods could look like. Yeah, to understand that local response. And, and I think it's worth just framing that Aberdeen is potentially at the, the epicentre of a huge expansion of offshore wind in Scotland. We've just had the Scotwind leasing policy for offshore wind, some of it fixed, which is literally fixed to the, the bottom of the sea or floating, sort of like a tethered barge or, or something akin to that. And we've seen about 25 gigawatts. So if you think uh, the new Hinkley uh, Sea will be, uh, the two reactors, there will be about three gigawatts. It's a big amount. Huge number of, uh, of equivalent of nuclear power stations. And Aberdeen is right in the middle of where many of this will be leased. And there's actually saw an announcement for Aberdeen Harbour sort of welcoming this. And Aberdeen Harbour obviously has been at the, the heart of the oil and gas boom over the years. So I think we've got two fantastic guests to talk more about this and who are grappling with what the transition means, particularly for local people. And as I say, their lifestyles, identities and jobs. So let's bring them in. Hi everybody, uh, my name's Tavis Potts. I'm a Chair of Sustainable Development at the University of Aberdeen. I run the Just Transitions Lab here and I'm the Interim Director of the Centre for Energy Transition. I'm a social science uh, researcher working in environment and energy topics. Hi everybody, I'm Alison Stewart. I am the NESCAN Hub Manager. That's a North East Scotland Climate Action Network Manager and I also run Aberdeen Climate Action. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alison and Tavis. And Alison, it's lovely to have you back on the show. Although I say back on the show, I wasn't actually part of the show that you that you recorded during COP26. So it's really lovely to be chatting with you on Local Zero. We're talking today about Aberdeen and a lot of the stuff that's happening in, in your part of the world. And for many people, they might be thinking, Aberdeen, like, where's that? Up in Scotland? Like, why should we care? What's going on there that's so special? So I'm wondering maybe, um, and Alison, I know you've got like really strong roots and connections to the community in Aberdeen and particularly through the NESCAM work. So could you just maybe outline for us kind of what is going on in Aberdeen and, and why 
why is this such an important part of the country to think about as we're talking about the transition to net zero? So I'll start the second bit first. Um, it's really important that we look at Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire because obviously we're we're known as the oil and gas capital of Europe, which is somewhat of a bit of pride for people that live here. It's very much a badge of identity. And so it's really important that we get the transition right here, that we have a just managed transition, not just for us in the region, but for Scotland as a whole, for our economy, but for the whole world, because we need a really good example to take forward to manage the transitions in other areas too. What's going on here in Aberdeen? Well, uh, (laughs) there is a very much a concentration on energy transitions. So going from an oil and gas uh, capital to an energy capital. Um, But it doesn't seem like there's a huge transition from the companies that are actually involved. So we have very much this discussion about oil and gas being part of the solution um, and greening the basin and blue hydrogen as opposed to a real transition to absolute net zero uh, energy sources. There are a lot of good work in relation to skilling up going on. Um, There is a lot of discussion about how we transition. Is there much action on the ground yet? Not entirely. We've got a lot of initiatives from business and um, politicians. So for instance, Opportunity Northeast is a a group that all the funding in the region goes through, which is a joint um, venture between Aberdeen City, Aberdeen Shire, Scottish Government and basically Surrey Wood um, and, and, and that funding. And so that obviously is somewhat of a little bit of a bias in some degree in relation to to oil and gas in my view this is only my view and the energy transition zone the same people are involved in that almost it's a hive off of one and then you have what's recently been renamed as a net zero technology center which was the oil and gas center quite recently all doing very quite similar um, jobs in relation to this whole idea of a transition to a new energy um, capital um, so that's what's really happening here in relation to communities, though, and the communities are trying to do it for ourselves. So there's a lot of work, particularly in Aberdeenshire, um, within climate action groups to to get to net zero in towns and to retrofit, to have local energy supplies, to have wildlife friendly villages, to, bevo- um, to provide food and reduce food waste. Um, all tying into kind of resilience and and on the um, I suppose with Storm Arwen coming through as well a real knowledge that we have to work on adaption as well so that's just basically how do we deal with a changing climate. My goodness me I mean well I think you've kind of set us up for the entire episode with that introduction it's a hub of activity in in so many different ways and I'm We're definitely going to drill into pardon the pun like drill into a load of those in a bit more detail Um, but I also want to kind of reflect this back to you, Tavis, because you introduced yourself. I I think anybody that just heard that or anyone knows you recognises that you come from halfway around the world. So, I mean, what pulled you to Aberdeen? Was it this hub of activity underway? Was it excitement about that or or just some kind of bizarre chance? Uh, It was more than the fact that I met my wife online and she was in Aberdeen and I was in the west coast of Oban. (laughs) So that's probably the the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm here. Um, and my background's in uh, marine science and sustainability. So I actually was involved in on the west coast of Scotland at the Scottish um, Association for Marine Science, where I headed up the social science team there, looking at a lot of issues around energy and communities, um, because the, the energy transition 
it affects different places in different ways, whether it's Aberdeen or a rural West Coast community or a community in 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 uh, Ghana or South South Africa or anywhere in the world. Different transition affects places in different ways, and so uh, when I came here, I had an opportunity to move to Aberdeen eight years ago and join the the geography and the geosciences school here, where. where as like the culture of Aberdeen is very much around and heavily focused on energy, both in the past and the present and the future, uh, I, I got more and more involved in questions of energy. And I've always been really interested in issues around social justice aspects of sustainability, natural resources, including including energy. But there's such a huge focus on energy in all aspects of northeast life, Aberdeen City and Aberdeen Shire uh, and the region. Uh, and so some of the big questions around net zero, what 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 does what does the transition to net zero really mean for a region uh, such as ours? And that's why it's such a, a fascinating question because there are a lot of aspects here. It makes real material differences to people's lives here about those changes and how the city and the economy and its people and its places all change. And 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 those those changes are not neutral. Um, they're not just technological. Uh, they have actually affect people in really different ways. Uh, and so the work that we do and, and the work that we've done as well with, with Alison working on, on the communities and the localism aspects of this is really, really important because uh, net zero and transition is not a neutral thing. Uh, absolutely not. And, and I mean, I've spent a fair bit of time over the last few weeks trying to delve into some of the kind of cultural history, um, some fantastic documentaries around the northeast uh, of Scotland and, and Aberdeen around because obviously this isn't, isn't the first transition they're going through. You know, in uh, look in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, we saw that this boom in the oil and gas industry. And in fact, the, the namesake of this pod, uh, Local Hero, obviously that film covers that off and fantastic documentaries around black, black oil and rigs of neg. This is a second transition in just a few decades for Aberdeen. And I wanted to get a sense from you both about the extent to which we're already seeing changes in Aberdeen. Are we still at the kind of talking shop phase, planning phase, or or are you, if you were to venture down to Aberdeen Harbour tomorrow, are you already starting to see changes? Is this real yet for the people of Aberdeen or is it something that's still on the horizon? I can have a start of that if you like, just quickly. It's actually, I think it's the third transition for Aberdeen because Aberdeen was historically uh, an economy based on on fishing and fisheries, and there was a huge fleet here. and And back in earlier parts of 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 the twentieth century, and 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 before that, the, the entire harbour of Aberdeen, which is one of the longest running harbours in the history of of the planet, was full of herring vessels and and hundreds and hundreds of boats. Uh, that that fished here, and it's still a very strong maritime culture here in Aberdeen, and and a working and a working harbour, an active working port, and and across the populate across the economy as well. So and then and then oil came in the sixties and seventies, and in, in Aberdeen, everybody knows someone who who works in the industry, and I have many family and friends who work in in that industry, and has provided really good income and so job security and employment for essentially what was a rural economy before that. Uh, and, and and so that's a really important aspect. Um, where are we now? Is yeah, I think it is getting real. It's 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 contested, and this comes back to whose transition and who decides about what the shape of the transition is. But there are genuine concerns and real opportunities and things that are happening at all levels. Whether you're working in companies who take a particular view, and I would 
kind of say a view that's around industry and technology and market-led transitions, and and uh, and other groups that have other views about transitions that are not necessarily connected to technological change, but the social and the cultural change and citizen empowerment uh, and the importance of people in that process as well. And and we have to bring those things together. I don't think we've brought those things together very effectively at all, but it is being talked about, and there's genuine concerns for the future of both communities and industries in this region and what what can be done. Alison, is do you have a similar view, or, or and obviously you do a lot more work with with communities. Is is there is there something else happening that maybe Tavis hasn't touched upon? Well, I think that you can see some difference. I mean, you can, you can physically see the difference when you go to the beach in in Aberdeen. You can see the wind farm right off the coast. So there is that kind of visual difference coming in at, from a maritime way as well. Um, yeah, I mean, communities are there are there are changes in there, and um, they need support to do. They're trying to do the more holistic uh, approach. You know, really, well, a lot of our members in in Escan are going for, um, say, for instance, in Davia, we have the whole of the village trying to get huge, like retrofit, complete deep retrofit, which is fantastic. So there's those kind of projects and other projects like in Bankery trying to get to zero net zero Bankery and things like that that are really heartening. Um, a lot of these things are still at a very early stage. And I feel that is where Aberdeen is, still in a really early stage and far too much of an early stage considering where we've got to get to. Because if we want a just managed transition, we need a maturing other industries to, to be growing alongside the oil and gas industry as it declines. And I'm not seeing that enough of that yet. Um, we are seeing, for instance, Aberdeen City Council's got its own net zero plan vision and Tavis and I are kind of helping uh, the council-led initiative of, of getting to net zero for the whole city, which needs to be widened out a lot more, I feel. And what, what, for what year, please, Alison? What, when are, when's their target for? Um, it's, t- it's 2045. Okay. Let's look into 2045. Um, so there, there are the plans. Uh, as Tavis mentioned, um, part of, I think, well, quite a lot of the concern of stakeholders is that it's not a cross-region. It's very much Aberdeen City, separate from Aberdeenshire. Although there are some cross-region initiatives, we need to, I, I can't help but feel we need a, a regional plan to deal with this that, that we all link into. So we all work together and pull together on this. And that, to me, would be the better way to do things. Um, but yeah, that we need a much more action. I think this is the time for action now. Let's get past the talking stage. And I just want to dig into that a bit more because, you know, you've, you've talked about kind of the stuff happening in the city and then the broader Aberdeen Shire. Like, where are some of the big differences then between what's happening in the city and, and the broader areas? Like, are, are they facing quite different challenges in your mind in looking at getting to net zero? Well, that's just in, in relation to the, the councils. So Aberdeen City Council is much further ahead in relation to their net zero plans. Aberdeenshire hasn't, in my knowledge, got them. Um, I know that the, the Shire themselves are looking at, at their plans, but not as, as a leader within their region, which is what you really need the councils to be doing um, and drawing in other kind of stakeholders along with the communities to really co-create that kind of action plan. And what you have is you have a city boundary, but there's not to people that live there, there's no boundary. Um, so the people that are affected by oil and gas are are much wider than just the city. It obviously goes into the Shire. But then in the Shire, you've got this kind of a lot of people worried about the transition in relation to farming and agriculture because that's that's the other kind of big industry in this area is agriculture and, and particularly ruminants as well so cows and animals and stuff so that's obviously a worry because we have to have a sustainable transition in relation to agriculture and I think it's it's both myself and Tavis's view that we need a holistic transition which takes in every single aspect of our lives 
And the worry that that, that I have, um, and I think it's shared by many, is that there's far too much of a concentration on simply an energy transition. Alison, Tavis, you've, you've said you've been involved with uh, Aberdeen's 2045 net zero plan. Could you share with us a little bit about what that looks like for Aberdeen, uh, what their priorities are? I mean, obviously, I'm assuming oil and gas is probably front and centre in that, but could you share with us a little bit of that vision? It's, it's still in progress. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a draft strategy at the moment that's being discussed, and, and Alice and I sit on the net zero delivery unit. Um, but it's very broad-based uh, for what we can see at the moment. It, it actually, oil and gas, I would argue, is probably not front and centre in that particular strategy. Actually, it's, it's more about within the remit of predominantly of of the city council essentially what it can do but it does reach out to some other areas like communities and civil society it covers things such as uh transport for example and and how we ensure that transport is is decarbonized and what sort of infrastructure is across the city for transport things such as heating uh uh, a major issue up as you can imagine in in the in the north of scotland because we have areas of the city that are on the gas grid and areas that are off the gas grid um and 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 we have major issues as everywhere does around costs and and areas of of poverty and how we actually ensure sustainable heating and heating networks is a really big issue up here because we have an emerging heating network in the city uh green space food uh, and the, the the part that Alice and I are working on uh, developing, co-developing with the council is the citizen empowerment and community empowerment aspects uh, of of that plan. So it's quite a broad-based strategy. Uh, it brings a lot of different groups together within and external to council. Um, it also brings in some of that energy expertise as well in, in, into that. The way that you've outlined this, I think the both of you, is that we've almost potentially got a two-tier reality for people living in Aberdeen in the lead up to 2045 about how they live and how they work. And if, forgive me if I've got the wrong end of the stick here, but you know, Aberdeen's net zero strategy, quite rightly, the council is looking at what it can do and its local stakeholders, okay? And and offshore is, is not within that necessarily. Um, and so they may develop a successful net zero strategy and, and and execute that and people may be living net in in a sort of low carbon way but unless industry stakeholders other than the council execute their own net zero strategy they could be living in a low carbon way but working in a high carbon way is this a danger the road the route map because they call it a route map the route map that we've been working on um is supposed to be for the for aberdeen city so not just the council but for everyone to tie into and we're looking to get pledges from people to to kind of bring into that um, and that's businesses as well but there's a lot that goes on that that you never know an awful lot about so the whole energy transition zone for instance it's very secretive there's not much known about it <laughs> Um, and their the business plan isn't isn't available, and so it's very difficult to know what that really entails. Um, and it's really important that we know what that entails because there is a potential um, unjust transition aspect of that because we have um, local development plan going through at the moment, which highlights green land of communities, so uh, St. Fittick's Park and also the beloved Reb Reed's Dooney's Farm and other kind of green land across the coast just by the new harbour um, for development for the energy transition zone that went in really quite last minute without real any or very much ability for local people to comment on it. 
Um, so we have this kind of local development plan going through, which can potentially mean that an awful lot of a, a wetland, so it's not even just a park, but wetlands, which are very, very biodiverse and important to the city, and you can see why that might be, might actually then be paved over uh, for the energy transition zone. So you have a potential there, a, a real potential for a clash between between two competing aspects of a transition. And that's when the real kind of crux comes in about how do you make it a fair and just one? Yeah, that really good points by Alison there and, and, and agree with them. And it's a part of the juxtaposition of living in a place like Aberdeen where you've got the local government with really progressive developing climate and just transition strategies and you've got global supply chains and global companies working in oil and gas and energy and and so I guess part of the excitement for me as a researcher but but also someone working in the community sense as well uh, is that all these different views and interpretations uh, there's a lot of power here you know as a social scientist I'm really interested in power and and in who 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 frames the debate and who steers the debate and who has the resources for example and we see huge amounts of money coming into the northeast of Scotland all being promised the just transition fund or the northeast uh, just transition strategy or the the oil and gas uh, uh, strategy and there is questions there about how that is that going to be spent where does that money go who decides about the, the transition that's going to be funded and and resourced and and we certainly feel that there's been an imbalance in the debate i certainly feel there's been an imbalance in the debate about that and because you've got different transitions for different parts of society often the trans just transition is framed around workers and that's critically important it's one of the key aspects of of the transition workers in a more general sense whether you're in oil and gas or fishing or farming or in tourism or or or, or a car mechanic but in particular this place workers in the oil and gas there are hundred thousand employees in, in scotland approximately of which a, a very large proportion 30 plus thousand are in the northeast of scotland so that's a really important question for them but then also you have just transitions for communities and the people who don't work in the oil and gas industry, of which there are many in the northeast of Scotland. And how do you deal with communities or areas that may not have benefited from the last three or four decades of oil and gas development? Because there are many places in the northeast that have not benefited from oil and gas development. So how are those concerns taken into account? How do we make this fair? And how do we make this work for everybody in the region so the transition has to be really democratic and broad and open and transparent not just for the energy elites yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna put that back on you right so you frame that as a question how do we make sure that this is a just transition a fair transition for everybody and you you explicitly kind of talk to the the workers who also may not get a say in the future of work and also to communities so I know that um, that you mentioned that you're both involved um, working with the council and particularly on the you know engagement and participation elements. I mean, is that something that we need to see more broadly? Well, if 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 that was happening across the board, would that solve this issue, or, or are there other things that really need to be incorporated quite proactively by whether it's by industry, whether it's by uh, government, local government, to ensure that this is a fair transition? I mean, what, what do we really need to see happening? What makes it fair? Well, you know, it's, that's, a, that's a really difficult question, but participation uh, and transparency is, is a key part of that, but it's not the only part of that. And I think even in 
participation and transparency, we've got a long way to go. I think the work that that, that Alison and, and, and Tara and colleagues in, in NESCAN and the work we've been doing in, in our Scottish University Insight Institute project on just transitions in the northeast, that's a bit of a tongue twister, I'm sorry, um, is about increasing uh, people's capacity to act and to pull together in communities and to empower them. But it's also about we need resources and infrastructure to make this change, to make those behavioural aspects stick. Uh, so, for example, you know, how do we ensure that there are uh, genuine opportunities for sustainable travel around the region? How can we ensure, like questions that every city faces around um, uh, cost and access and generation of energy in the home, uh, but the thing we have here in Aberdeen is how can we draw upon the expertise and the knowledge of those both in the energy industry to help us along that path, uh, but also to ensure that everyone has a voice and everyone has a role in that, everyone has a say in that. Yeah, I agree. It needs to be process, you know, so you have to have to have this kind of co-creation aspect, but also the money. <laughs> Where does the money go? That has to be decided in a democratic way. At the moment, it feels like the funds are just going to go into big business and go into the pockets of shareholders. And we've got to, I think, to my mind, we've really got to separate what is best for the region. And we need to have a, a, a diversified economy, not a bust and boom that we have had up until now with the oil and gas industry. So we need several different uh, industries. I, I don't want it just purely to go to, um, to energy. It can't just go to energy. There's not enough jobs purely in the energy streams that we're talking about to take on account of all the people that are going to need to transition across from oil and gas. And not just transition along, across from oil and gas, but all those industries that are dependent on the oil and gas as well. You know, all the hotels in, in Aberdeen, um, you couldn't used to, be, used to be able to not be able to get a B&B room or a hotel room in the city during the week for love and the money. And now, now you, of course, you can't, okay, it's COVID as well, but still it's a huge, it's a huge amount of people dependent on that industry. So you really do need to be thinking about it in a much wider sense. Um, so I want the money, I think the money has to go into the region to regenerate the region, not afterwards, but now. Um, and, and that obviously we can help and we should help businesses to transition, but not just give them like particularly the big, big oil and gas players, um, oil and gas companies, not just service, more them than service companies, um, but give them money so they can just put into their hu already humongous pockets to, to then um, give out to shareholders. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's right. So do you think a lot of this comes down uh, to things that need to happen, I guess, at a policy level? So just picking up on three of the things that, that you both mentioned, um, you know, participation, like how can we increase those democratic and participatory processes? You know, things like citizens' assemblies, for example, um, community engagement, the transparency. I'm thinking, you know, like particularly around um, <laughs> like the, the energy transition zone example you gave. I mean, how do we make sure that those those processes are more transparent? And of course, the finance. I mean, is this something that government has to set out? Do we need new regulation, or um, do you think it's kind of down to to other other actors to to make sure all of this actually happens? Like, whose responsibilities it got? To, who who does you know who does this lie with basically? With everybody, all of us, really, isn't it? It lies with everyone at all levels. 
um, Aberdeen is a is a global city. It's a it's a, it's a city that has very strong links to London. It has strong links to 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 Edinburgh. And it has strong regional and local links. So, in some ways, there there needs to be levers pulled at all levels. You know, for example, um, Aberdeen has received a, as many cities have sizable sums around the regional city deals. For example. Uh, over the years, and uh, the question is of how how is that money going to be spent, and who 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 receives the benefits of those those funds in around making transition happen, and and I think there's there needs to be much more transparency and 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 democracy, but that can only happen if if uh, citizens communities are empowered to ask those questions, they have the capability to act, they're able to mobilize. For example, um, one thing I've done in in, in 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 our work at the university is try and ensure that a lot of the research that we do um, has both industry and community representation on it. Um, it's only a you know it's only a small aspect, but is showing that there are diverse voices at the table often is you know is is the key first step that hasn't been considered. For example, that when you're looking at whether it's a you know, a major initiative or or working with different groups that we have you know citizens citizens and community groups at the decision making table often they're not in in the decisions that are made around energy transition in the city. So I think we're progressing. I think along that I think we're making you know good directions, but there's still huge huge amount of weight to go, uh, and ultimately probably policy and regulatory reform about how we actually make decisions in the local local environment. Some of my research has pointed for the need of things reusing the ETZ as a case study in St. Fittix Park. We need much more active um, roles for, for communities that actually have a, 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 a regulatory role in planning, for example. Citizen assemblies are great, but their decisions need to influence the process and influence the outcome. They can't just be run and then that's nice. Let's go this way. They actually have to be responded to formally yeah. uh, as a part of the planning process. Things like that. So it's about the that governance architecture, the process by which you're starting to platform people's voices, yeah, but also give them power with regards to decision making. So as you say, they are at the table. I completely agree with all that Tavis has said. But what I would like to say is that we do need direction from the top. So when we're talking about making sure that there's a real um, transition, not just diversification in our energy, in, in you know, in, in, in the kind of industry that is keeping us afloat in the northeast right now, um, then government needs to say, okay, this is when we're phasing out oil and gas. This is this is this, these gateways are X, Y, and Z. This is this this is the percentage that we need to do this. This would be very clear on the fact of if they're gonna allow new oil and gas um, production or just wind down existing fields. And and they have to give those that kind of level of of structure to this transition, and they have to give incentives, and they have to give regulations that force it, and put you know put monetary um, values on this. If if oil and gas companies still want to continue to pump out oil and gas, knowing that our our planet is dying because of it, and that we as a, a species are going to die out then you need to make it so that they have they have to pay huge amounts to to take make sure that carbon doesn't go into our atmosphere we need to have direction from government regulation from government incentive from government and we need to have these obligations cascaded down to local authorities too at the moment we've got no obligations on local authorities to get to net zero by 2045 as a as a minimum and that's ridiculous. You may have preempted my next question, Alison, but uh, oh, really? but in a good way. What we what we like, what we 
try and do at the end of every episode, um, at least for now, is to pause and ask the question, you know, what does this mean next? So our listeners uh, ordinarily interested in local climate action. What can they, their families, their communities, their councils, what can they do next? And I'd like us to just pause and think in the case of Aberdeen, obviously Aberdeen's quite unique in, in the sense of the UK, um, but it's not the only oil and gas city planet Earth by any stretch of the imagination. And I just would like to get a sense of some reflections from both of you but, and some pointers to our listeners about what they can do going forward. If you may be thinking, framing this in the, as residents of Aberdeen, but it could be any oil and gas town or city, what lessons can we learn so far about what's happened in Aberdeen and, and to take the next steps forward as citizens of these towns and cities to accelerate that net zero just transition? A big question, but a soapbox moment nonetheless. Um, who would like to tackle that gorilla first? Just something really important but basic based on my experience is that you should talk to your friends, your family, your neighbours and your street about the changes that you want. Um, I come from a coal mining community in Australia um, and and, and a couple of generations of my, my, my dad and my grandfather both either worked in power stations or the mines for coal. And, and those cultures are still really strong. Uh, you have to have those dinner table conversations about we need to move away from these resources into a, a, a renewable and a just future across the board. And that sometimes they're awkward and put you in a difficult space. So have those conversations more broadly uh, and get involved in your local or start, if you haven't got one, a local community climate action group because really magic things happen when, when communities and people come together, uh, as we've done in our own little community in Nubra, uh, and, and when working our way through it. Uh, start actions, empower yourselves, have the conversations. I, I really like that, Tavis. Yeah, I think that's really, really valuable. And Alison, your moment really to offer our listeners some steps forward. So, I mean, there's, there's normal stuff that, that all of us can do, you know, like how we live our lives, reduce what you consume, you know, actively, you know, walk and cycle rather than dip your car. All that kind of stuff is really good. If you're talking about what's specific in relation to being in a in a transition zone, as it were, then I would say what you have to do is demand a seat at the table is is go knocking on the doors. You know, I wouldn't have had to see the just transition delivery, you know, um, if I hadn't gone and a letter in saying where's your community in this discussion so i think it's really important that you speak speak to your neighbors speak to people and um, go and 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 group together and, and make a start you know but also it's about getting a seat on that decision making table um i think that's really crucial on speaking to mps and msps to make sure that they realize that it's more than just simply an energy transition in not you know just speaking to big people but speak to everybody fantastic well said political change is important Political change is a massive part of this. Political engagement is a massive part of this. Yeah, I find it's, it's very easy to sometimes reflect back on the or fall back on those kind of things that we can do as consumers. And so frequently we're thought of as particularly by the big energy industry as, as fairly passive consumers where all we can do is change what we buy. But you're right, there are so many other actions that we can have and getting that seat at the table and and 
voting uh, and, and engaging in the political space is is absolutely something that it sounds sounds like is going to have a, a massive impact or has the potential to have a massive impact, particularly, Tavis, if you can get all of your neighbours and, and friends and communities on board as well. And, and then it's not just you knocking at that door. It's it's a whole it's a whole load of you. So no, some really, really solid ideas and uh, definitely something, Matt, for us to take back into our communities and to work with a little bit more. Absolutely. So I guess all that's left to do is to say thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed the conversation and it's been fascinating to learn a little bit more about what's happening in Aberdeen and also to think about some of the things that we can all be doing uh, at home and in our communities. You've been listening to Local Zero. If you haven't already, please do go and find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter. Get involved in the discussions there. And if, like me, you're either useless at social media or can't constrain your thoughts to 140 characters, please email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. But for now, thanks and bye. See you soon. Produced by Bespoken Media.